Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today we're coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen live after the jump every Wednesday at 1 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org or download the podcast on iTunes anytime. For the past month on After the Jump, I've been focusing on larger issues in the creative community. We've talked about the hidden costs of retail, the realities of being an independent designer, and what it means to run a design studio in a changing online world. And as much as I love zooming out a bit to look at the big picture, sometimes it's really nice to take a moment and zoom in and focus on one issue or one project so special and so interesting that it deserves its own magnifying glass for a closer look. And today we're doing just that, taking a closer look at the incredible redesign and branding update of a New York City institution, Russ and Daughters. And I'm thrilled to be joined by the two women behind the project, designer Kelly Anderson and Russ and Daughters Director of Media and PR, Jen Snow. Thanks so much for being here, you guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs> and it's a little toasty in the office today, so please bear with us. Those of you listening, think of cool breezes, Arctic fields, things that that feel a lot colder than it is in here today. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you guys because this was something I kind of ran about pretty recently. And I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit that I had never been to Russ and Daughters until recently when my wife Julia took me and I was totally design geeking out um, about all the packaging from like the tiny tins of caviar to the incredible bags and logos. And then we were looking at Instagram and I had no idea that Kelly was involved. And I was familiar with Kelly from sort of the design blog community and I love when two communities kind of explode into each other. And I wanted to ask a million different questions. So I'm so excited to have you both in here today. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, Kelly, I'd love for you to sort of introduce what Russ and Daughters is. Uh, people who haven't been there and maybe haven't heard of it yet. Or you want to take oh, sorry, Jen. Oh. <laughs> Jen. So Russ and Daughters is an appetizing store. It's a hundred-year-old business on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And an appetizing store, uh, as opposed to a delicatessen, is uh, appetizing is a food tradition that is actually one of the few food traditions that is unique to New York. Uh, it grew in New York from originally when Jewish immigrants uh, at the turn of the century, a lot of them kept kosher. So delicatessen sold meat and appetizing stores to- sold uh, dairy and fish. Uh, Russ and Daughters was never kosher, but it, uh, it just made sense due to the, the demographics of the area to sell, you know, that one product and to specialize in that product. So uh, the business started uh, as a, a herring barrel first uh, on Orchard Street, uh, selling schmaltz herring, which is a salt-cured herring, which is still a, a product that we sell, uh, and then became a pushcart and then a shop. That's fantastic. Um, I'm so curious to hear how each of you came to this particular project, but Jen, I'd love to know more about your background. You have a fascinating history, not only with 
like 826 NYC, which is Dave Eggers' amazing creative writing project. But you're also a born and bred New Yorker. Um, did you grow up eating at Russ and Donner's? I, well, I was born in Brooklyn, and I, I lived in Brooklyn until I was three, and then my parents moved to the suburbs in New Jersey, to a, a sort of perfect Levittown in New Jersey. Uh, but every single other person in my family uh, stayed in Brooklyn or moved to the Upper East Side, so I spent a whole lot of time here growing <laughs> up, uh, even though, you know, we'd go home to perfect suburbia. Um, and I did eat Russ and Daughters. It was definitely one of the stops that my, pam- my, uh, my parents would make on the way you know, back to New Jersey, or my grandparents would bring in from New Jersey because you couldn't get good bagels in New Jersey. Uh, and I, I think you can't get good bagels anywhere other than New York. Yeah. I know possibly. that makes everybody really angry, but I think it's really true. Montreal would have a fit if they heard you say that. A different type of bagel. A different type of bagel different. in its own right. It's yes. stretched out. Uh, yeah. So that's, so I, I grew up shopping there, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't someplace that I worked and it certainly wasn't a world that I thought of working in at all. Uh, the food world was nothing that I thought of working in at all. I, uh, I worked at museums, and I was a journalist, and uh, I ended up working for Dave Eggers in his nonprofit, 826NYC, uh, which is an amazing institution in Brooklyn that helps kids with their reading and writing skills. And uh, I was doing... Uh, I, I, had, I had been a journalist, and people always... People who worked for, for 826NYC would say to me, well, okay, you work for, for uh, newspapers and magazines. How do we get into newspapers and magazines? And I realized, well, I've sat and listened to publicists pitch me stuff for six years. I bet I could do a publicist job <laughs> if it was for something that I really, really cared about. So I, I left uh, the newspaper world and I went to work for them. And uh, I did uh, fundraising and uh, production of, of concerts and things. Uh, and PR. And then one day I just happened to be talking to a friend of mine who's a food writer who had grown up in New York City. And she worked at Russ and Daughters one summer, I think it was between high school and college. And I just said something off the cuff, like, oh, I'm going to Russ and Daughters to pick up some bagels. And then I'm going here. And she said, oh, my God, you you need to work at Russ and Daughters. (laughs) And I said, you're totally right. I I need to work at Russ and Daughters. (laughs) It just sort of like hit me all like I, I need to work at Russ and Daughters. Even though I was not interested in, I'm interested in the food as a, as a cultural thing and interested in the food as it being delicious, but it just wasn't a career path that I thought of. And so she said, well, it's so strange that you don't know the owners. They're two young people, vaguely our age. They both grew up and did totally different things. One was a chemical engineer who worked on the West Coast and one uh, worked for nonprofits and the UN and worked for the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and they both realized that their family business was really important and came back to run their family business. And she knew that I was also very, very interested in uh, cultural and family businesses in the Lower East Side and in New York City and New York City history and culture. So she said, you know what, you should just meet them. Uh, So I met them and uh, we got along really well and we started talking and I saw that they were hiring somebody to work at the fruit and candy counter. And I said, look, I have no retail experience, no customer service experience, <laughs> no food service experience. I speak a little bit of Yiddish, though. And my family also started as a push card in the Lower East Side. So I'd like to apply for this job. And they basically looked at me like I was insane <laughs> and said, great, let's be friends. And I said, no, no, I, I also want to apply for this job. It's part time. I'll keep my other job and I'll work here on the weekends. Uh, so I did. I worked at Russ and Daughters on the weekends for about six months while I stayed at my other job. And then eventually they said, okay, quit your job and come, <laughs> come work for us for real. Come work in the office. There's a lot of things that you can do that we can do. Because so. your, your business card, which I'm looking at right now, you actually, on your business card, says Yenta as your mm-hmm. job description. <laughs> How did you sort of 
shape herself from being sort of the fruit and candy counter person to being the director of PR and marketing. That's a huge, huge mm-hmm. jump. How did that sort of transition happen? Well, I think since that's where my background had become uh, in, in my other jobs and in the other things that I had done previously, uh, I certainly had no experience with the fruit counter. Uh, it, it just was a natural progression. It was something that they saw that they were a hundred-year-old business. They were the fourth generation who had officially just taken over and bought the business from the third generation, and they were looking at ways of growing and expanding and, and changing certain things while still keeping tradition intact. And I think it was just time for somebody else to be in there. There's so many customers and so many generations of people that we're so lucky to know, and those stories and those experiences are so so important. And that's what had drawn me there in the first place was the fact that you walk in there and there's a hundred years of stories. Period. That was that was what the underlying thing was as to why I wanted to be in that space. And we just all realized, Nikki and Josh, my bosses, realized that you know this this is a valuable thing that this business needs is somebody who can also talk to the customers, who can also collect the stories, who can also use the stories in ways that you know we can connect with our customers and, and things like that. I think storytelling is becoming increasingly, I mean, it's always been important, but I think it's sort of experienced this rebirth of importance or relevance to sort of contemporary customers because what we're losing and all these amazing independent shops are dying off left and right. It's amazing to have something that's not only been around, but it's still so culturally relevant and important and still successful. So to have someone like you there to continue to collect and tell those stories is a massive part of sort of maintaining that presence, not only in New York, but really across the country. It's such an institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's something that's so important to the family too you know everyone in the family that that the fourth generation that works there not only are they working in the office running things they're behind the counter with a white coat and a knife slicing smoked salmon and helping customers and on the holidays we're all handing out orders and answering the phones and and that sort of mix of people who really have their hands literally in the fish (laughs) and who have the heart and the soul of, of of the store and of the of the the history and of the relationships that that i think that make Russell Daughter is a really special place. I'm I'm curious to know what a day in the life of of your life is like at Russell Daughters. <laughs> is, is there an average day? There is no 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 average day. Uh, every day is that weird mix of of answering the phones, of replying to emails, of talking to Mrs. So and So who hasn't been in the store in 40 years, and she came in and she remembered you know X about the last time that she was there, or talking to So and So who comes in every Friday and every Wednesday for their weekly order, or uh, you know, hearing from people by phone and by email, trying to dream up ways to to use these stories and to work with these customers and to and to just connect with them, on, you know, in other ways. Mm-hmm. That's so fun, um, Kelly. I'm going to get to you in just a second, but I want to know a little bit about how this project began because you two worked together, obviously, on sort of this new updated look. Um, was it inspired by sort of the opening of the new Russ and Daughters Cafe on Orchard, or was this sort of a larger project that had been brewing of wanting to kind of give a hundred year old company a bit of a facelift? Yeah, when I started working, I started working there about five years ago, and when I started working there. Uh, design was something that was super important to me and something that I always just assumed was super important to Russ and Daughters because the look was so specific and so beautiful and so so detailed. And uh, I learned that it was that, but it wasn't that necessarily on purpose, that a lot of the design just grew out of whatever the design had been in the past. So a customer in the 70s had drawn up a logo and that became the logo. And uh, slowly but surely over the years, there were tiny little tweaks, but not necessarily on purpose, just because this printer had this file and this printer had this file. And uh, when I came in, I thought that it was really important to sort of streamline all of that stuff. 
because of the way that I work, but also because it, there's, there's a lot there. And there's a lot there, not just in the version of the bag that happened to be printed at the time, but in my obsession with looking through the archives and, and looking through the New York Public Library's archives to see if there's any remnants of things or photos of Russ and Daughters in the background or, you know, just seeing what I could find. But nobody ever thought the business would last 100 years, so nobody <laughs> saved stuff. It wasn't, that, that imperative wasn't necessarily there. So there was a lot of sort of searching. Uh, and then a good transition is that uh, about uh, around the time that I started working there, the writer Calvin Trillin, who has been a long, long time customer of Russ and Daughters and has a, a great relationship with the Russ family and with uh, Herman Vargas, the longtime uh, manager there, uh, and who has written about Russ and Daughters in countless times in The New Yorker and in his own books, uh, he gave Russ and Daughters the gift of a shopping bag that he had kept in his kitchen since the 1950s. And I saw the shopping bag. And it is still, I think, one of the most beautiful examples of design that I have ever seen. You know, that, that's a, a big thing. But it really is. It's something that really speaks to the history uh, of Russ and Daughters because it is the history of Russ and Daughters. It's just this authentic object. It's one object. There's one shopping bag. Nobody has any photos of people with the shopping bag. Nobody else has the shopping bag. He had a close relationship with Russ and Daughters, and he kept it because it was meaningful to him. And then he gave it to the fourth generation, Nikki and Josh Russ, as a gift. And it sat in a box in my office until, like, it really was sort of haunting me. <laughs> I took a photo of it at one point and blew it up, and it's one of the photos that's hanging, lining our office, and framed. And I just sort of always talked to my bosses about, you know, we need to reissue this bag. We have this gorgeous piece of history and this gorgeous piece of design, and we need to use it instead of, maybe not instead of, but in addition to the one that was developed in 1990 and the one that was developed in 1960. So that was one of the touch points that, Kelly and I connected on in the first place and that we had a starting point as well as amazing million ideas that came from her too. <laughs> so let's talk about how you two got together. How did you two meet each other and how did you decide to work together for this project? I was looking for people uh, to hire to, you know, when, when the restaurant came around, it was time to, to hire somebody to do all the graphic work, uh, the graphic design work, which, I mean, I thought that I was hiring somebody to do a menu and a bag and some very small things. Uh, and I had known Kelly's name just through, I think, a bunch of friends and through the reputation of her work. And we started talking and I, I really liked her in addition to liking her work. And I felt like, okay, this is a woman who gets it. Uh, and what started out as something small grew into something much, much larger because neither one of us had ever made a restaurant before. The Russ family had never made a <laughs> restaurant before. And so there's a whole lot more that goes into it than just a menu design and little things like that. And, and luckily, Kelly is brilliant. <laughs> and I, I really, really lucked out uh, in, in finding somebody who would also scour through archives and, and, and look at books of storefronts from the 30s and, and you know, infinite <laughs> resources that, that, that also, you know, all went into how we designed the new place, too. Kelly, how daunting was it to take on a project with a company that's 100 years old with so much, like, a, a rich, rich history? It was incredibly daunting. Um, I mean, I think my, my first reaction when I got the random email that said, Russ and Daughters needs graphic design help was, you know, first... Yes, that's awesome. And to like, why me? You know, I felt automatically like I wasn't worthy in a way because I haven't been a customer for a hundred years anywhere, and certainly not there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even originally from New York, although um, 
my grandparents uh, grew up in, in Brooklyn, and so I, I, I am actually from Louisiana. I'm from New Orleans and then lived in a suburb called Mandeville. And, you know, ever since I was, like, could talk, basically, they were telling me stories about New York and telling me about how great egg creams were. And um, so, I don't know, I really, I really had this, this romanticized idea of the city that I've always lived with through stories and through pictures of objects. And so, um, so, yeah, I definitely was plagued by that feeling of I'm not worthy and then realized at some point that maybe I had been daydreaming my whole life, like kind of in preparation for something like this. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you're talking about this sort of romantic, like nostalgic version of New York in your head. And I feel like as someone who went to Russ and Daughters for the first time just a, a while ago, it, it is this living version of that nostalgic idea of New York in your head because everything is so the same as it was then. But that you guys have done this beautiful, like brilliant spin on something that's so classic without making it feel like this obnoxiously modern version of something that doesn't need like a huge change. Um, I'm curious to see what were sort of the, the missions going forward. Um, did you have specific items that you wanted, you, you need, needed designed or needed to make over or how did it expand into this much larger project? Because you even tweaked this sort of core logo for the whole business. Well, I, I think one thing that drove us, honestly, which is probably not the best driver, was fear that we did not want to turn Russ and Daughters into the Epcot version, Epcot Center version of Russ and Daughters, that we really wanted to analyze what it was about the place that brought all of these people together, what about the place, um, you know, really, really embodied its, its values. Um, and so, you know, we, I think we, we really did try to dive down to like the concepts and ideas behind everything and then reassess like each little piece of historical materials, like each bag we found, each version of logo we were looking at and really think about like, what do all of these little teeny tiny decisions mean? What does it mean? Like in a modern context, what did it mean when they were making it 50 years ago and what should we keep? What makes sense? For us to keep and what makes sense for us to update a little bit um you know you're definitely not trying to do like a modern super modern update you know trying to make russ and daughters relevant in modern times because they already are relevant but um more just going in and sort of like smoothing over the creases and trying to better um better emphasize what we thought were the original intents of um you know the people who were making the design um who maybe just didn't have like the right tools to make a perfect curve. And so that's why the curve's a little bit wonky. So we, we fix things like that. I love that you guys got into those details. I want to talk a bit more about the creative process. We're going to take a very quick break and I'll be right back with Kelly Anderson and Jen Snow to talk about Russ and Daughters.
following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. After the jump, I'm your host Grace Bonnie, and today we're talking to the incredibly uh, uh, talking to talking about the incredible updated branding and sort of makeover of Russ and Daughters and the Russ and Daughters Cafe in New York City with designer Kelly Anderson and Jen Snow, the director of media and PR for Russ and Daughters. Uh, before the break, we were talking about sort of the history of this incredible 100-year-old company and how you guys started working together. But I'd love to hear a bit about the creative process. Um, when did you guys start working together, and what was sort of the time period from start to finish from all of this conversation and digging through archives to the final release of everything. Well, we we started in November. Yeah, yeah. Um, it really didn't feel like of we 2013? had enough time. Mm-hmm. You worked quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it had been an idea, obviously, that had been brewing in Nikki and Josh Ross's head and in my head for forever. But you know, we had the guiding principles of what we wanted to do and of of, of the, the essentials, which is that we wanted to stay. Hamish, which is a Yiddish word for authentic and, and, and real and, and comfortable. And we wanted to, as Kelly said, not become the Epcot version of, of Russ and Daughters. But, you know, just how to simply translate 100 years of history, simply, how to simply translate 100 years of history into a new space. Yeah. And Jen, before I even got there, Jen had done a ton of research. Jen was working with a, a librarian at the New York Public Library, trying to find like old versions of menus. And like you were saying, like photographs that Russ and Daughters happened to be in the background of. Um, and going to the municipal archives where they have all of these, what they call tax photos, like photographs of the street from the 1940s that Russ and Daughters just happened to appear in. Um, and so it's it's funny because, like, you presented me with all of that research that you did, and I, at the time, I didn't realize that you were such a good researcher, and I kind of, like, went to all of those places and redid your searches, <laughs> not knowing that you also had a background in art history and, like, knew how to use the library. So I got to the tax photo office, and I was like, Oh, yeah, this is really all they have. (laughs) So we were kind of astonished by, like, actually the lack of materials and documentation. Like, the fact that a place can be around for 100 years and, like, the library has nothing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that people didn't think to save their bags except for Calvin Trillin. Um, (laughs) is just kind of incredible and um sorry i'm getting off topic from the the question of well no process, I, I wanted but... to ask you right after that about sort of the most difficult or challenging part of the process and it seems like one of them probably was finding this archival material yeah and it's something that i've been trying for five years i mean since i started working there as soon as i started working there i thought like this is an amazing project to find all this history that they don't have in in the filing cabinets upstairs uh they had they had pretty neat filing cabinets and it didn't contain that many design items or things but I was convinced that there had to be more there had to be you know so many artists and so many amazing amazing storytellers and people were customers and were living in the area and I was just convinced that there had to be more uh and there is more not necessarily all design relevant Mm -hmm. but I mean even just this week we found a map that Jonas Mikas had drawn uh recently from memory of what 
uh, downtown Manhattan had looked like in the 1960s. And, you know, he just sort of etched out, like, where his friends and different artists lived. And then in one part it says, you know, Russ, and that's the Russ and Daughters building. And so just to to find little bits of Russ and Daughters was always important. And so any information that I was able to give Kelly and to use, you know, was, was super important. Yeah. But I hung out with Jen it. a lot. Yeah. Like we, I just like stood in the store and we talk about the food and we talk about the people and you know, that I'd try things. I got to try like everything there, but you know, it was this like, it, you know, it, it was like trying to absorb everything, like a very maximalist approach to like absorbing all of the information. Like, you know, who are the customers? Like, what is it like to hang out and stand here and watch people order sandwiches for three hours? Like, what are all of these objects on your shelves? Like, I think we we did a rundown of, like, absolutely everything that you knew. We tried to do, like, a mind-meld brain transfer <laughs> as quickly as possible to, to get that, that background. And I think, like, having that background and having that information and just having experienced it in this deep way and making a study of it made made us feel like we were in a position to take this history that isn't either of ours and you know modernize it uh, and bring it to a new audience i love how much you guys keep mentioning the customers and what it means to them what their experience is like what's their reaction been so far to not only the new restaurant but sort of the updated look it's been pretty amazing um in that the reaction has been positive but it's also amazing when people don't necessarily notice, which is what we sort of wanted. We wanted these sort of little surprises and these little hints of things, but we really wanted somebody who has been shopping there for 60, 70 years or multiple generations to feel just as comfortable as somebody who came in off the street. And I think Russ and Daughters in the shop uh, has always tried to do that, in that there there have always been changes and upgrades and things, but the sort of guiding... Uh, force to all of those uh, updates has always been, well, just make things as imperceptible as possible, you know, not not to hide them, but just to make, you know, th- this history and tradition and continuity, you know, be something that that is so valuable. So, yeah I, th- yeah, I think it's been a similar reaction. I mean, maybe it's a cliche to think about it this way, because it is, you know, th- these two big design personalities in the history of New York are always Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses. And so, like, I think of like, Robert Moses, a Robert Moses approach would be, like, a total rebranding. Like, you go in and you bulldoze everything and you think, like, okay, well, ideally, what should this be? Which, you know, an, an ideal utopian version of what it should be is, of course, like, not what is going to connect with people versus, like, this slow evolution of many hands developing this thing organically. And I feel like that really represents Russ and Daughters, that idea of, like, these small things that happen day in, day out, that no one necessarily pays attention to or documents, but is meaningful for a lot of people. And eventually the composite of that adds up to this this monument and this monumental institution that really defines, like, a, a certain... A certain, a certain, I don't know, flavor of of the city itself. You know, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's my favorite. And I think this is something that, if, as a fan of your work, Kelly, like feels distinctly you. Um, was the way that you've sort of looked at some of the actual like ephemera of the company. Um, I'm particularly thinking of like the deli counter tickets that you turned into wallpaper for like the bathroom design um, in the new space. That's so clever and so like unexpected. And I think if you had hired like a traditional design firm to come in and do something that wouldn't have happened, but there's this almost like slightly DIY ethos happening there. Was that something that evolved naturally or did you go in thinking like we want to pull out these tiny objects or things that are so nostalgic to the experience of Russ and Daughters? Well, 
I think we, both Jen and I sort of put on our, okay, so our goggles of this isn't about us, this is really about the customers and their experience. And so if you've been coming to Russ and Daughters, like what are like the material bits of Russ and Daughters that you've come in contact besides your sandwich, which you both down. So, you know, like we automatically knew that we wanted to use the take a number tickets and, um, you know, the pattern wax paper from the sandwiches and like the seeds that were on the bagels itself. Um, so all of those things were things that we knew that the customers already had an intimate relationship with and that we could use to ease this transition into the new space. And so um, the take a number wallpaper, that was actually Jen's idea. She's like, you know, she's like, well, you know, we have this take a number. Why don't we pattern it together? And so I, I took home a roll of these things you can actually buy rolls of take a number i only have seen them like as individual take a numbers these little funny like arrow shapes but they actually come in these long rolls so i now have a long roll of them (laughs) and i took them home and got a bunch of white paper and started like gluing them in a whole bunch of configurations we did stripes and zigzags and um it just turned out that like the restaurant was sort of evolving this slight art deco theme like in the same way that new york city has a slight art deco um you know designed to a lot of the architecture and a lot of public buildings and so we ended up um doing this sort of art deco fan shape pattern for both of the wallpapers and the the bathrooms one of which is sesame seeds and the other one is the take of number um so that just seemed to make the most conceptual sense but um yeah, I mean that was a great part of the project. It might be one of my it's one of my favorite parts. Mine too. <laughs> it was definitely like a very I mean it was a very good collaboration. It was a very even collaboration between yeah. both of us, which was really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean I may have had an inkling of this idea, but I could never in a million years make anything physical happen out of it. I can talk and talk and talk and Kelly can make amazing, amazing things. And so I said, Okay, well here's this little you know, idea, and then we started playing with the, you know, the Art Deco theme, because theme theme is maybe too strong, but in the same way that the Chrysler building is, New York City is Art Deco, uh, we always sort of, uh, something that I was always sort of worried about is how do you, how do you represent a hundred years and be timeless, but not necessarily tied to any one specific period within that time, and, and, and the vague Art Deco elements, I think, really captured that, and that's something that Kelly just totally noticed and, and went with, and, and then physically created in a way that is, is mind-boggling to me still but it's it's there and it's on the walls yeah whenever we whenever we got stuck I feel like we were really good about looking to material reality you know big and small so either like looking at that take a number and thinking about what can we do with this or just like walking outside and looking at the city and just thinking about like what the different you know what the shape of the space means, you know, so I, I feel like all of our decisions were, were based in this, this material reality, which is like the constant that's shared between everyone. So, um, you know, there was no projecting or personal nostalgia. I mean, there was a little bit of that, but I mean, for the most part, we really tried to keep it tethered to an experience that everyone coming to Russ and Daughters could share. Mm-hmm. And even in picking the silverware, we had, we had gone, I had gone with, uh, my colleagues, uh, Jeremiah and Suzanne, who are the general manager and the AGM of, of the place, and we had gone to look for silverware at the different restaurant supply stores, and we picked out a few patterns, and then eventually we saw one that was, uh, it had two names, one was Manhattan, uh, and one was Metropolitan, and it was the same pattern, just one was silver and one was, was plated, and 
it was beautiful. And I think my first thought was, oh, well, maybe it does look a little too Art Deco. But then I thought, well, no, it's, it's called Metropolitan in Manhattan. How could we not? <laughs> you know, aside from the fact that it's beautiful, like it, something about that made sense. And so I, th- I think that logic translated into other tactile things, too. Yeah, I think sometimes we didn't even know either. And it was like this really happy coincidence that we were just responding emotionally to these lines. Like, you know, this shape is better than this shape. And not realizing why. Like, for example, Jen picked out the, the water glasses, which are the Duralux made in France water glasses. They have two little striped lines on it. And we realized, like, at the end, we were sitting down with these water glasses, and we are like, oh, there's two striped lines in the logos. There's two striped lines in the deli counter at the old shop. And so, appetizing you know... Appetizing counter. Appetizing. Oh, God, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know that it's an appetizing okay. store. I just... Deli <laughs> counter rolls off the tongue. Appetizing counter. Oh, my God. This is so embarrassing. No. no. <laughs> I, I think what you guys have done is you've really brought to light that old design maxim of, like, the best design is invisible. And I think what you've done is created this project that has harnessed all of this nostalgia and really good feelings and the history of something that's impossible to create from scratch, that it just is because it's existed for so long. And you've beautifully married that history with something so interesting and so of the moment. There is that sort of, like, tactile DIY quality to so many of the things that you both created together and I think it's such a great example of what design can be when there's such great communication between a client and a designer and I'm just so glad to live in a city where we get to see that on a regular basis um, and we're totally out of time I want to ask you a couple more questions before we go um, but I'm so glad to get a little bit more I'm going to ask you a million more questions that we'll add to the email or the post version of this interview but before we're going to go um, I want to ask you a couple quick questions the first of which is what's your go-to order at Russ and Daughters? Starting with you, Jen. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, my big secret is that I am anaphylactically allergic to fish. <laughs> Not so much a secret now that I sit on the radio. Um, but it's something that I grew up eating. I wasn't always allergic. I grew up eating it. It's, it's the comfort food of my childhood. It's, it's in my blood. Uh, so if I'm serving other people, I, I would serve some Gaspé Nova smoked salmon and just the all-natural cream cheese and some mini bagels. Uh, but as for me, I love the baked farmer cheese, the pot cheese, the raw walnuts and, and almonds and, and the dried fruit. What about you, Kelly? Um, and my secret is that I have celiac disease and can't eat any bread, so <laughs> bagels are out for me. But um, I really like the goat cheese cream cheese and the Gaspé Nova salmon on um, whatever gluten-free substrate is around, crackle bread <laughs> usually. And um, at the restaurant, the halva ice cream, the halva sesame ice cream is so good. And... Um, Hot smoke, cold smoke is also, it's an appetizer. It's really, really, really good, too. <laughs> I just keep thinking to myself, mmm, gluten-free sub- substrate. <laughs> <laughs> um, other than Russ and Daughters, um, for each of you, what's one of your favorite other iconic New York institutions or brands that really pulls on that sort of heartstring nostalgia that Russ and Daughters does for everyone else? Or do you have one? Let's start with you, Kelly. Um... Well, the the public parks, um, the fact that there's so much real estate in New York City that has been set aside for the common good um, is really, like, it makes me cry a little bit, you know, just even thinking about it. The fact that the people who designed the city, like, had that that foresight and that belief that, you know... um, sort of what's good for all of us is, is good for all of us. And um, I, I just love that. I love living in a place whose physical structure um, reflects that value. 
What about you, Jen? Yeah, I mean, that and the, the, the New York Public Library, of course, for similar reasons, for physical reasons, the space, the, you know, and, but also, you know, for, for practical and logistical reasons, uh, the museums, the Whitney Museum, the mm-hmm. Museum of Modern Art, places that I worked, but luckily, but that to me, walking into those buildings, is, is, there's a certain timelessness to that, that that's really important to mm-hmm. me as well. Our very last question today is, uh, what's a brand, a designer, a trend, or a movement that you hope really happens and makes it big this year? Something as amorphous as brunch to something very specific, like a designer or maybe a chef that you guys both love and you'd love to see more of. Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm going to lead with gluten-free substrate. (laughs) That's a really good question. Um, Well, I'd love to see more, like more political work always. Um, uh, cause I, I feel like there's, um, I don't know. There's so, there's so much work that is either like self-referential or just simply about consumption and not about anything else that I want to see more work about ideas and about, poli- I mean, that's a very non-specific answer to your specific question, but, um, that's kind of what I'm always hoping for. What about you, Jen? This is a really difficult question. <laughs> I'd like to see a million things. I think. I think. Th- th- uh, any time that there's authenticity, that that's 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 apparent, and any time that that a reflection of history, not necessarily an old business, but any time there's that respect to things that have come before or things that inform the decisions that you're making, I, th- I think that's something that's really important to me. Good answer. Thank you so much for both of you for being here today. Thank you, all of you, for listening. For those of you listening, you want to check it out. You can visit Russ and Daughters at russanddaughters.com. You can check out Kelly Anderson at kelly with an I, anderson.com. And one last note, you can check out uh, Jen's very awesome Tumblr page, which is things I don't understand and definitely am not going to talk about.com. It's a wonderful website, total off the topic, but a great one uh, to check out. So we'll see you next Thursday. Thanks for being here and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.